because China in this uh, proposal and in its propaganda, in its narrative, it doesn't distinguish between the attacked and the oppressor. Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. If this is your first time checking out our podcast, you might also enjoy some of our past episodes, which you can find on our blog site at pwnilo.com or by searching for Perspectives with Nilo on your favorite podcast app. In this episode, I'm chatting with Swedish journalist and author Joje Olsen, who lived in China for almost a decade before moving to Taiwan in 2016. We discuss Joje's own journey and how conditions for journalists in China have changed in the past decade. But first, we examine China's ability to be an impartial and effective peace broker in the Russian-Ukraine war, China's 12-point position paper, and the controversial comments by China's ambassador to France, Liu Xiaoye, as well as Xi Jinping's first and only phone call with President Zelensky 14 months on from the start of the Russian invasion. Yoye, uh, you're very welcome to Perspectives with Nilo. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, let me start with um, maybe a question on one of your recent articles. Uh, there was a, to give a brief background, uh, Liu Xiaoye, who is uh, China's ambassador to France, was interviewed on French television around the end of April, and he said that Crimea belongs to Russia, and then developing that reasoning to the point that former Soviet states lack legitimacy as they do not have the status of independent nations in international law. Um, it was an extraordinary set of statements, and it caused quite a bit of upset. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this whole uh, incident? Yes, yeah, so Lu Xiaoye, the Chinese ambassador to France, was interviewed on uh, French TV and uh, he is known in the past as well to have uh, created many, many controversies. But uh, this one was uh, particularly bad for uh, even the European Union and NATO because when he said that the former Soviet republics uh, doesn't have uh, any effective status in international law, he actually also questioned the nationhood of uh, the Baltic states, which are both European Union members and uh, NATO members. So that's something that uh, really, really raised a lot of eyebrows uh, in, in Europe as well. And, and given the strong reaction among all those those nations in Europe, uh, Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs quickly retracted the statement. Uh, but the headline on your article says, China's statement about illegitimate Soviet states should be taken seriously. So why do you still say that then? Yeah, there was a strong reaction indeed. You could see, for, for instance, like Lithuania's foreign minister said uh, that this was a sign that you can never trust uh, China to be some kind of peace broker when it comes to Ukraine. And I think that Lu Xiaoye, which is a seasoned uh, diplomat and he is uh, ambassador in France, a position that has a vice minister status, he knows that when he goes on French TV, he re doesn't represent himself, uh, he represents uh, China. And I think this uh, point of view that uh, the Soviet Republic doesn't have any effective uh, status in international law, it's uh, something that he most likely did not come up with himself. 
because as a diplomat you're supposed to uh, obviously portray the opinions of uh, your, your country. So this is something that has most likely been discussed uh, within maybe the Communist Party's uh, study sessions. You can believe that uh, he is not alone in the Chinese bureaucracy of having this, uh, this idea. Uh, you can see after the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, you can see that uh, Vladimir Putin has all of a sudden taken a lot of interest in Taiwan and come out to support China's uh, stance on Taiwan. And it's likely that uh, Lu Shai and many other uh, hawks in the Chinese bureaucracy, they want to kind of return the favor by uh, just uh, repeating the Russian narrative on Ukraine and uh, also reflect uh, Moscow's uh, thoughts about the status of uh, Soviet republics. And I think this is in line with the multipolar world that China and Russia want to create, that they say that they want to create, where bigger states uh, have uh, some kind of a carte blanche to, to treat uh, their smaller neighbors uh, just, as they, just as they please. So Lu Xiaoyi, like a high-ranking diplomat like him, saying something in an interview like this, it cannot only be personal opinion that uh, Chinese authorities try to explain this with. It also has to have some kind of background in discussions with the other Chinese uh, bureaucrats or in uh, Chinese Communist Party study sessions. And uh, some other kind of facts surrounding it. I believe the Chinese embassy in France didn't apologize for his remarks either. And then you had other entities like uh, Chinese state media uh, kind of making excuses that he was pressured by, by the interviewer um, and that, you know, he, he's allowed to have his own freedom of expression and we shouldn't attach too much to the comments. What do you make of all of that? Yeah, exactly. You can see the response from the Chinese foreign ministry was that uh, yeah, China respects the independence of uh, all nations and territorial integrity in, in accordance with the United Nations uh, Charter. But it didn't say anything specifically about Crimea. Uh, and also you can see that, uh, as you said, that some Chinese media, they tried to, to blame the interviewer on the French TV for being too, uh, too aggressive and that this uh, statement was uh, taken out of context. So you can see the reaction from uh, Chinese uh, foreign ministry and also Chinese media. It was uh, more of an excuse or an explanation, uh, more than an apology for, for Lu Xiaoyi's statements. And I think that also says uh, something about uh, the mindset in, in China uh, about, this, uh, about this issue, that uh, just not to appear weak, uh, you don't apologize for this kind of statements, but you try to explain them instead, and that further creates uh, doubts about what is really China's, uh, if not official policy, so at least what is the Chinese uh, thought on this issue. And Lu Xiaoye apparently is, is one of Chinese diplomats who uh, considers himself to be able to interpret his leader's statements and his leader's positions better than other diplomats, at least this is what some commentators say. And this wouldn't be the first time, as you kind of alluded to earlier, it wasn't the first time that he's made headlines uh, as regards uh, statements he's made. Um, I believe in another interview on, on French media, he spoke of the need to re-educate Taiwan's population after the island comes under Chinese control. Yeah, Lu Xiaoyi is indeed uh, one of China's worst uh, wolf warriors, as you, you 
called uh, aggressive uh, Chinese diplomats. And uh, last summer, as you said, in an interview with uh, French media, he also said that you need to re-educate uh, parts of Taiwan's population after uh, China takes control over Taiwan. And that is something horrible to say if you think about the re-education centers that you have in Xinjiang right now, where ethnic minorities are uh, being uh, well held and brainwashed and suppressed. And also, of course, with the background of how the democracy movement in Hong Kong was, uh, was treated. So he is aware of that the things he is saying is uh, creating controversies, but still he nonetheless says this kind of uh, controversy, controversial things time and time again and he still stays as the ambassador in France and when the Chinese uh, foreign ministry and the Chinese media react to his statements they don't really apologize or they don't really they don't really walk back on them they more of kind kind of try to explain them so I think that Lu Xiaoyi he has made a calculation that uh, in China of today, in Xi Jinping's uh, aggressive, uh, the aggressive foreign policy that uh, is a sign of Xi Jinping's China, those controversial statements is to his benefit as a career diplomat. And um, in terms of the impact of his statements on Taiwan, um, is this just signaling uh, China's intention in a little deeper way, or, or, or is there other, is there something else intended there? I think in Xi Jinping's uh, China today, as uh, an official, you have everything to win to appear hawkish on Taiwan. You have very little to win to be dovish on Taiwan. I think Lu Xiaoyi, as an ambitious uh, diplomat, he knows if he uh, pushes a hard line on Taiwan abroad, that is something that uh, will have uh, the attention of, of, his, uh, of his bosses, that, that will keep him uh, as a high-ranked uh, Chinese diplomat that might even be uh, promoted in, in the future. And this is uh, kind of worrying because it becomes a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy that within the Chinese bureaucracy, if you have uh, so many diplomats making so many hawkish stance about Taiwan, it becomes a bit like uh, a vicious uh, circle where they try to uh, where they try to outdo themselves about uh, hawkish statements on Taiwan and that creates a very toxic uh, atmosphere in the Chinese leadership where everyone is kind of uh, triggering each other to be harder and harder on, on Taiwan which can eventually end up in uh, very unfortunate uh, policy decisions. And um, we've also seen then of course as, as a kind of, I don't know if it's a follow-up or not, but certainly subsequently uh, Xi Jinping has his uh, first call, phone call with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine 14 months after the start of the Russian invasion. Uh, there's been a lot of requests on China and Xi to help broker peace. Uh, what do you make of this uh, surprise call from Xi? Yeah, so just as you say, uh Despite Xi Jinping having very close contact with uh, Putin since uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in uh, February last year, he didn't talk to Zelensky even on the phone until uh, late April. And uh, this happens the same time as China wants to portray itself as neutral in this conflict and also want to uh, portray itself as a potential peace broker, as a, as a meddler in this conflict. And the longer the time goes without having a phone call with Zelensky, the harder it would be to kind of uphold this uh, picture that uh, China should be um, neutral in this conflict. 
So, especially after uh, the zero tolerance against COVID-19 was lifted and you had more and more uh, Western uh, diplomats and politicians uh, visiting Beijing and the meeting with the Xi Jinping and other top diplomats, the, the pressure has increased against the Xi Jinping to actually talk with, uh, with Zelensky. And there is also, of course, a possibility that uh, the phone call happening now is to uh, take focus from uh, Lu Chayet, the Chinese ambassador in France, his uh, reckless uh, comments about the former Soviet republics and instead move focus to this phone call and show with using the phone call instead of an apology as a tool to kind of trying to convince the surrounding world that China is neutral in this conflict and China could potentially uh, work as, uh, as a peace broker in, in, in Ukraine. And how realistic do you think that would be of, of China uh, playing a role, an actual role of brokering uh, peace in Ukraine? Uh, as you kind of, I think, mentioned to earlier at the beginning of our chat, uh, the Lithuanian foreign minister was quick to throw cold water on China's attempts to broker peace after the Liu Xiaoye uh, comments on sovereignty. So in late February, uh, February on the, uh, the year day of the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, China issued this uh, position paper with 12 points on how to uh, create a political solution to end uh, the fighting in Ukraine. And if you look uh, closer at this 12-point uh, uh, proposal that uh, they released, the, it's nothing in there that talks about uh, Russian forces uh, should withdraw from Ukraine's territory or uh, anything that criticizes uh, Russia for its uh, uh, crimes in the war, uh, its bombing of civilians and so on. But on the other hand, there is uh, points in this uh, proposal that uh, talks about you should end uh, the sanctions against Russia. So. The proposal in itself was very tilted to a solution that would suit Russia. And as long as this is the, the situation, it would be very difficult for, for China because uh, to act as a peace broker. Because China in this uh, proposal and in its propaganda, in its narrative, it doesn't distinguish between the attacked and the oppressor. It doesn't distinguish between Ukraine as being a country being attacked by Russia it more or less uh, gives the impression that it wants the two countries to kind of meet halfway, even though one is clearly an aggressor and the other one is a defender. And during this uh, phone call in uh, late April between Xi Jinping and uh, Zelensky, Zelensky also clearly stated to, to Xi Jinping that Ukraine has to retrieve all the territories that was lost, including Crimea. So as long as uh, China has a view of this conflict that is so out of touch with Ukraine's uh, with, with Ukraine's view as uh, the country that has been attacked. It would be very very difficult to sit down and uh, let the China lead those uh, negotiations. Are there any other reasons you think China can't be a mediator in the Ukraine-Russia war? China views the war in Ukraine as a part of the bigger geopolitical uh, conflict uh, with, uh, with the US. 
And of course, in the in the Cold War, really, that we are seeing now between uh, China and the U.S., uh, U.S. biggest assets are the allies that the U.S. have. U.S. have uh, dozens of uh, democratic uh, nations allied with, with itself within the uh, within the frameworks of uh, NATO and G7, whereas China only really have two allies that we used to talk about, and that's North Korea and Pakistan. If you talk about an alliance being uh, kind of uh, agreement that you you are going to defend each other in the event of war. Russia is uh, not an ally of China, but it's the most important uh, strategic partner that China has in the geopolitical conflict with the U.S. That means that uh, the worst outcome for China in this conflict would be that uh, Russia loses or that uh, Putin's power in some way diminishes because of this conflict. So if uh, Russia was to uh, lose uh, militarily or even lose face in Ukraine and uh, Putin's stance in Russia would uh, diminish as a consequence of this, that would be very bad for for China uh, because it could not be sure that whoever uh, follows uh, Putin would be as uh, as obedient or as loyal to, to China in this geopolitical conflict with the US. So because of that, China would never want to see Putin being uh, weakened as, as a result of this conflict. Probably to change uh, tack just a little, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own story. So you lived in China from 2007 to 2016, uh, and then in 2016 you came to Taiwan. So I'm, I'm curious, why, why didn't you go back to China in 2016? So what happened in the summer of 2016 was that I was denied a visa to China, where I had been living for almost a decade. Mm say that I was uh, blacklisted from China because when I tried to get a new visa even from Hong Kong even a tourist visa that was also denied without an explanation so the reason for me never getting a new visa to China was never officially explained but for me it's uh, very likely that this is uh, connected to my work that I did in China as a journalist because in 2015 and 2016 we had two uh, Swedish uh, citizens that was uh, kidnapped by Chinese police. One of them, of course, was the book publisher in Hong Kong, Gui Minhai. He is a Swedish uh, citizen. And uh, when uh, something uh, happens in a small country that becomes international news, the Chinese authorities, they will scrutinize closer uh, who writes what and who says what about this uh, situation. And because I was the Swedish journalist in China that wrote most about Gui Minhai, they probably disliked my reports and then they decided to uh, deny me a new, uh, a new visa. You could see the same thing, for instance, when Liu Xiaobo got the Nobel Peace Prize a handful of years earlier. There was a lot of Norwegian uh, journalists and academics who was also having problems to get the visa to China. So most likely, even though not officially explained, I am, uh, well, I know that I'm blacklisted but I think, I believe that the, this blacklisting is related to, uh, to my work, my reports about China in general, and Gui Minhai in particular was not, was not liked by, by Chinese authorities. A recent RSF uh, survey uh, ranked China as 179th in terms of global press freedom, just above North Korea. Um, there are many cases of journalists being detained in China. Do you think it's a safe place for journalists these days? China is not safe at all for journalists, even if you are, uh, it doesn't matter if you are a 
foreign or a domestic journalist as long as you dare to, to toe the, the party line as a domestic journalist or if you write uh, reports that the Chinese authorities uh, dislike, you are in risk of uh, everything from uh, losing your visa to getting detained and as a foreign journalist you also always have to keep in mind that your sources, the people you interview, they will also be in a big problem. Having moved to China in 2007 and having studied journalism in Hong Kong between 2009 and 2010, I can really see how the conditions for journalists in China has been worsening a lot, in particular since uh, Xi Jinping uh, took power in 2012. When I studied in uh, University of Hong Kong, my master of journalism, it was a very... Uh, I had a lot of uh, Chinese classmates and they were very excited to uh, go back and work as journalists in, in China because they believed, and so did I at the time, that uh, China was developing in a more uh, liberal direction when it comes to media, civil society, academics. But as it turned out, a couple of years after Xi Jinping took power, it has instead been the, the opposite. that. Uh, media, social media, internet, instead of becoming a tool for activists or uh, politically interested Chinese to organize themselves or to keep the government accountable, it has instead become a tool for the government to control the proper opinion and to, uh, to attack or to map or even arrest uh, activists and citizen journalists. and. Uh, one thing for foreign journalists that has become uh, increasingly common in the past few years is that the, the visa is being used as... Uh, well, journalists are always being, almost being held hostage with the visa. That you receive warnings that if you don't report in a way that we approve of, uh, maybe your visa will, uh, will have some problems to get renewed uh, next time. Because every year you will have to renew your uh, visa as a foreign journalist in, in China. And that includes uh, often being uh, questioned by Chinese officials and getting this kind of hints. And for foreign journalists in, in China, that uh, creates a certain degree of, of self-censorship, which is also very worrying. Taiwan ranks much, much better than China, obviously, in, in, in the RSF index. Um, how, how do you find living in Taiwan as a journalist? Is it a pretty easy, open and free place to operate? It's the exact opposite of uh, China. And I think uh, being a foreign journalist uh, writing about China, reporting about China, there is not many places in the world that is better to be than Taiwan because the community not only of journalists but also of uh, NGOs and academics have uh, really increased here in the past uh, decade, even in the six, seven years that I've been living here because a lot of organizations and journalists, uh, activists, they have to leave China and in recent years they also have to leave Hong Kong and many of them they end up uh, here instead. And as you said, the Reporters Without Borders, when they opened the, the organization you were referring to with uh, the Global Press Freedom Index, when they want to open their uh, Asia office, their Asia bureau, uh, about uh, five years ago, they first uh, planned to open this office in Hong Kong, but uh, because of the development there, they choose uh, Taiwan in, instead. The thing in Taiwan as a journalist, uh, the authorities are also very helpful to uh, arrange interviews or to give you access to uh, even uh, ministers, but they are also 
they are also at an arm's length that they would not bother you with uh, with things that they they would not really try to affect your your reporting in any way in, in my experience so as a foreign journalist in uh, Taiwan having lived in China it's really the it's really the opposite and some final thoughts from Yoye on the upcoming Taiwan presidential election i think it will be uh, very exciting to watch the presidential elections coming up here in uh, January I think in Europe, people should pay much more attention to the Taiwanese presidential elections that, uh, than, than is currently the, the situation, because the two parties that is uh, up for the, for the election, they have uh, very different uh, approaches to, to the relations between China and Taiwan. And that is something that is going to affect the geopolitical situation in the Taiwan Strait a lot. And uh, this is becoming increasingly important also for, for Europe. So this election, I think everyone in Europe with an interest of uh, global politics, they, they should really watch this election very closely. Also, in what ways uh, China will try to influence the election. My thanks to Yoye Olsen, journalist and author, for joining us on Perspectives with Nilo. You can find out more about Yoye's work on his Shine Media website, which is Sweden's biggest news site about China. We have linked his site and some additional references for you to dive deeper on our blog site at pwnilo.com. And don't forget, you can also follow Perspectives with Nilo on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Instagram and Twitter. And we'd really appreciate a like or subscribe if you enjoy our content. Well, that's it for the moment. Until the next time, thank you for listening. From Taipei, Taiwan, Zaitian.